0: Well, hey everyone, good morning, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, special welcome to you if it's your first time uh, worshiping with us, whether here in person or maybe you're watching online here. We're just very thankful to have you with us. Uh, as we come together, as we, we worship, we praise God, just like we did in our uh, prayer earlier today, to kind of draw our hearts to an acknowledgement of who God is and who we are in relation to Him um, and doing it together uh, as a church. Um, so we're very... Thankful to have that uh, privilege of doing that together with you. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into our message for today. Lord, thank you um, that you are worthy of praise, that you are uh, a God who um, is, is righteous, who, who does what he says he is going to do, who is faithful uh, and just, and, and we are people who live in the light and the presence of that. Help us to do that uh, th- this morning, God, as we, and help us to do it together, and help us to do it as we leave this place as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are in a series called Build and Plant. You can see that on the screen here. Um, And it is a sermon series through the book of Jeremiah. It's going to be kind of where we're going to be camping out for this summer. And we're talking about what God is doing um, and and how He sometimes comes and uproots and tears down. He kind of pulls things up out of our lives to make place for Him to build and to plant. Um, and we've been kind of trying to talk about that balance between those two. And some weeks, you know, we're a little heavy on one or more than the other. And today I think we're going to talk a little bit more about the upright and tear-down stuff, okay? Um, going through uh, Jeremiah 14. But first I want to, um, you to imagine that you, you go to a restaurant, you're, you're, you're very hungry, right? And, and something on the menu, you know how they put pictures in the menu sometimes, right? To kind of catch your eye, kind of get your attention. And you look at something and you think that would look so good on a plate right in front of me as I am chomping it and it's going into my stomach. And so you order it and then something else comes out that, you know, that's maybe not what you thought you were getting, all right? Here's a few examples of this. All right, this is a a steak salad. This is what it looked like in the menu and then this is what actually came out. Uh, This is something called Subway Pizza, which was maybe not a good idea in the first place, but this is what it looked like when it came out, okay? Um, This is some kind of Burger King hot dog thing, you know, probably should stick to burgers when it's in your name, um, and then this is my personal favorite here, this is from IHOP, it's something called the Cookies and, and Stuffed Cream Toast from IHOP, so this is what it looks like in the menu, and this is what came out, <laughs> yeah, I'll let you decide what you think it looks like on the top of that piece of uh, French toast there, okay, uh, now why does this happen, um, you know, I've never worked at a restaurant, so I can't say for sure. And I'm sure some of the times it's just there's some teenager in the back who, you know, doesn't know what they're doing or doesn't really care that much. Um, but I, I do think a cynical take on it might be this. Um, it's, it's a lot easier and efficient uh, to take a picture of, you know, one burger, right, to make it look really good and throw it in the menu Uh, and then get people to think it looks really delicious, and then, you know, not necessarily put the same effort into making every burger that comes out look like that, right? Um, Because at the end of the day, you know, whether you put in the the huge amount of effort to make every single burger come out look just like the menu or not, you're still making the same amount of money, right? So it's kind of like there's not a lot of incentive necessarily to make sure that you are always making sure the picture and what actually comes out are the same. I think it's, just, you know, it's kind of human nature to get the best deal, to get the most bang for our buck on things, right? And, and you know, we might think it's, it's probably not okay, but I think we can understand that often it is easier and more efficient to not worry about what's actually coming out um, at, at the same time or afterwards, okay? I think it's easy for us to kind of have that approach to our own lives, where we project a picture that we are a good or righteous or the right kind of person, the kind of person that you know, we want to Im- impress people with or that we think you know the people that we desire to impress are looking for us. So we try to like, make them think we're that, present them that picture, and not worry so much that that image actually matches up to the real thing of how we're actually living uh, when people don't see us or when the people we're trying to impress aren't around necessarily, and I think, like I said, I think it's human nature to kind of put the least amount of effort into something as possible that we still think will get us 100% of the reward, right? To kind of see what, what's the least amount of work I can put into this thing and still get what I might actually want, which is for people to think I'm a good person or a righteous person. It's a lot more easier or efficient, I think, uh, to, to sometimes worry about the image than it is what is actually behind it. And if when that happens, especially on a large scale, when we're all kind of playing this game, it kind of makes it feel like the whole world is like a stage that we're playing on, right? Where what matters most is what we look like on stage and not necessarily who we are off of it. Now, we might call that hypocrisy. And interestingly, the, the word that hypocrisy comes from, our English word, comes from a Greek word that actually literally means acting in a theatrical part, Okay, so kind of an idea that we're putting on a mask or we're acting like we're in a play. We're pretending we're someone else on a stage for people to see that doesn't necessarily match up to who we are when we get off stage. And there's big and small versions of this. Like small versions would be like just in one-on-one conversations where maybe we embellish something, right? We kind of just turn the volume up on something we did a little bit because we know it'll sound impressive to someone else. We We kind of throw it in there. Maybe we don't even realize we're doing it, but we know it presents something about us to the person and we get you know, something we might like out of it. And there's, there's, you know, bigger versions of this too. And there's actually a term for this, you maybe have heard before, it's called virtue signaling, where sort of signaling that you're the right kind of person is often in our minds the same thing as actually being it. We kind of confuse those sometimes. And so that means we live in a time where our approach to like doing good works is oftentimes maybe just like putting a yard sign with a message on it in our front yard, and just saying, like, if people will see that this is the type of person who lives here and think they'll think I'm a good person, and boom, that's kind of what I'm maybe necessarily just going for. Now, like, you can go ahead and put yard signs in your yard. I'm not saying, like, don't do that stuff or whatever, but I'm saying the, the fact that we oftentimes think that's sufficient for what our actual goal is kind of reveals to us what our motives are a lot of times. We want to make people think we're the right kind of person, whatever that measure is, right? we might have different measures of what it means to be the right person. And then we kind of expect a pat on the back for you know, signaling it, and being recognized for that from other people. And we kind of are like, yeah, this is what I actually wanted the whole time. Uh, Jesus says about people who would go out and pray very loudly and dramatically kind of in the uh, vision of everybody else, he'd say, when they get attention, they've got their reward in full, Okay, they're not actually asking God for anything. They're looking for something from the people who see them. When they get attention, that's all that they've actually wanted. They're not actually that concerned what God thinks about it. Okay? Um, we are acting a lot of times like what matters to us is what people and maybe God see, but not what is actually behind it. Now, something similar was happening in Judah in the book of Jeremiah, and today I want to talk about what God's response to it was and what we can learn about it and who God is building off of that. So today, the sermon, uh, we're, we're going to call it, Pleasing God When All the World's a Stage. And you might have heard that line before, All the World's a Stage. It's a, it's a Shakespearean line, or at least that's where it's famous from, from the play. Does anyone know what play it's from? Julie's nodding, but she's like, It's As You Like It, which... It's not a play I know anything about from Shakespeare, but it's a very famous line. Actually, it's an older line. Actually, uh, Shakespeare didn't invent it. He actually, I don't even know who started it, but a lot of people use that line before he kind of popularized it. But the point is, like I've been saying, we often live like our life is what we present to people on the stage, and what we do when we get off it is not so important. And that's all of life for us a lot of times. Well, What does God think about when we treat our lives like that? And him, like that's true. Like, what what do you think he thinks about that? And well, he kind of is going to tell us here in Jeremiah 14. But I'll just spoiler alert: he doesn't take too kindly to it. He's not a huge fan on it, a fan of it. And there's a lot I think for us to learn and meditate on when we see what he says. Okay, so let's uh, jump into Jeremiah 14 here. So Jeremiah 14:1. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought, okay? So there's some drought going on. We don't know anything, uh, any specifics of it, but apparently there's a drought going on in Judah at this time. Now, um, prayers and good ones at that are often what you, know, you think would be the godly and right thing to do in this situation, right? Offer God a good prayer and hope that he responds to it and he makes the drought go away. He makes it rain again, makes our crops grow. And, 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 and you know, Jeremiah recounts a prayer here, either we're not sure if it's actually what the people were praying to God or if it's something Jeremiah is kind of throwing at God. And he's like, Hey, if the people prayed this, what would you think about that? Would it get you to sort of change your mind or, or do something about this drought? So here's the prayer Although our sins testify against us, do something, Lord, for the sake of your name. For we have often rebelled, we have sinned against you, you who are the hope of Israel, its Savior in times of distress. Why are you like a stranger in the land? like a traveler who only stays a night. Why are you like a man taken by surprise, like a warrior powerless to save? You are among us, Lord, and we bear your name. Do not forsake us. Now, this prayer that's being offered to God is everything you'd expect it to be, actually. Okay? It is a it is a really good prayer. It sounds like a lament psalm. It expresses repentance, It presents an argument to God. This is actually pretty common, uh, you find, especially in the Old Testament, is arguments presented to God for for why he should respond. Um, They bear his name, and God wouldn't let someone who bears his name fail, right? Because that would reflect poorly on him. It asks God to move not for their sake, but for his own glory, his own honor, Okay? And, and we find out a few verses later that they're actually fasting and crying and are offerings that are being associated with it. Okay? So a lot of really good stuff that's being presented to God here. Um, to any observer who kind of knew what to look for, again, again, if you read other parts of your Bible, you would read prayers like this that God responds well to. Like that you would see this and think this is a very pious prayer, a good prayer to offer God, the kind of thing that he has responded to in the, pa- in the past. But here, to God, we're going to see that this prayer is, like, is nothing more to him than sticking a yard sign in front of the house and thinking that's all that you need to do. okay? Uh, something fit for a stage, but not really reflecting who Judah was. So here's God's response to this. Verse 10. This is what the Lord says about this people. They greatly love to wander. They do not restrain their feet. So the Lord does not accept them. He will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. So God is like, what do you guys think I am, stupid? Like, what do you think I've been doing this whole time that I've been sending Jeremiah and other prophets to you, telling you to turn? Like, do you think I've just been sleeping? I know that this prayer is not done in good faith. It looks righteous, it looks pious, but I know what's behind it. I know where this is coming from. A people whose hearts love to wander. This is just part of your wandering. It's just part of you going from thing to thing, seeing what will work, and you're hoping this thing will work, but it does not really represent anything behind it. I've been watching you guys do this for years. I know there's nothing really there for me. Okay, God has eaten at this restaurant before. He knows that what's in the menu is not what's coming out on the plate. And their wandering shows that this isn't always deliberate. I think it's important to kind of note this. It, it just implies their aimlessness or inconsistency. They're kind of blowing from thing to thing, which might not seem so bad, but God has brought charges against them. That's actually a word he uses in another place in Jeremiah to describe what this wandering has led to, okay? They're cruel to foreigners. They're unjust. There is innocent blood on their hands. They're going after other gods like it's no big deal. Uh, they're playing politics with other nations just for their safety, um, He knows none of that stuff is going to change just because of one prayer that they're offering up to him. He knows that. That's the case. And he's just kind of done with it. So he he lets Jeremiah know this. And he actually goes even further. He says, uh, Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for the well-being of this people. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, famine, and plague. So God actually goes so far as to say to Jeremiah, Don't even pray for them. Okay? Like other times in scripture, like you find a mediator who would come and pray for the people and God would hear and deliver Israel. And God is telling Jeremiah, Don't don't even bother doing that here, God, dude. Like this is this is not this is not gonna work. He's he's gonna hang up the phone if Jeremiah tries to do that. He says and said, He will give Judah what their actions actually deserve judgment. Now I want to talk about a little bit of what we can learn here as we sort of meditate on it all, all right? It's kind of a harsh thing to read, but I think there is a lot for us that God can uh, build and plant in us, okay? And that's this, that God calls us to be more than what we are able to present to him and to people around us. We, we live in an age where people strongly value moral perfection, all right, I think sometimes we often believe, like, this is, like, a totally lawless age. Like, you know, there is sort no one cares about morality or, or virtue or, or purity or anything. But I actually would think it's the total opposite. I think we live in a very, very righteous age, okay? A very, uh, an age that very much values purity, okay? Just think about, like, you know, we're just coming out of this. But, like, the debate on both sides around, like, vaccines and stuff like that. Just think about the ways that groups of people talked about the other side who was doing all these things, like how morally imperfect they were for how terrible they were, like how much disgust that they had for people on the other side. Um, I think there is often intense pressure on us, you know, and in, in different ways, different regions of the country, different, you know, social locations we might live in, there is intense pressure on us to hold the right views in order to fit in. And it might, you know, it might not be the same in every area, but I think we're always constantly feeling this. And so because of that, we want to be able to think of ourselves as good people. And we usually show that in just having the right attitudes or opinions. And then, like I said, finding ways to let other people know that we hold them. Okay? And a lot of times that's our approach to righteousness or being a good person, is having the right attitudes and opinions and just letting people know that we have them. We post them online, you know, we work them into conversations. Like I said, we put them on yard signs in front of our house. Um, you know, we, we get angry with our friends who hold a different view than us. Right? All these different ways we find to sort of express this, these attitudes and opinions we have, I think, just to kind of make us feel like we're good. Again, a lot of times, too, to make other people a certain crowd that we might have think we're good, and we do it by complaining a lot of times, okay? Now think about what happens, though, when you are expressing this stuff to people in different ways, okay? You kind of are creating for yourself, like a moral standard of righteousness, right? You're saying all these things, sometimes casually, sometimes flippantly, that if you really think about it, you often don't meet yourself, right? The, The sort of law that you create that people should follow that you are expressing to other people, when you really look at yourselves, oftentimes you're not measuring up to your own standard. Okay? Now, maybe we don't like the idea of God judging us like he is to Judah here. Maybe that makes you, like, uncomfortable or, or something like that. But even by your own standard, you often don't measure up, let alone God's. I think that's something we don't realize a lot of times when we're constantly trying to express to people that we're the right kind of person, is how often we actually fail to live up to the own standard that we are creating for people. And so we end up engaging in hypocrisy or play-acting, putting on a show, acting like the world is just a stage. Again, thinking that we're going to get the full reward by just showing people we're the right kind of person as opposed to actually trying to live it out and be it. What we find in Jeremiah 14 is that God is more concerned with who we are off stage than on it. Okay, The show of looking good might work for people But it doesn't work for God. He's not asking us to look good to him. He's not asking us to pretend the world is a stage. He's asking us to follow him, to honor him, to love him, to worship him, to do uh, justice and mercy, to embody Christ-like love, and to do it all even when there are no pats on the back to be had for it. He wants us to be real and authentic, and he wants it to truly flow out of of who we are. Like, not rules we follow, but like a tune that we have in our head that we can kind of play intuitively. And when we aren't that, which, I mean, we often aren't that. He wants us to cry out to him in, in genuine acknowledgement and repentance and humility, not cynically try to present something to others or him that isn't true. Not to pretend, you could say that we're totally healthy when we're actually sick with something. Now, this might sting to sort of reflect on this, okay? I know it is for me to think about the ways in which my own grumbling or complaining about different groups of people, uh, like I often fail to live up to that myself. And it should sting us a little bit, but I don't want to shame to be what you feel when you hear all this stuff, okay? And I don't think that's the takeaway we should have from reading this passage in Jeremiah either, okay? I actually want to free you From doing that, God knew it was pointless, I think, to expect Judah to do this. But think about the fact that we have the book of Jeremiah now. It means someone wanted to preserve these words so that people reading it could learn from it, that God could work through those words in people's hearts as they read it, as they meditated on it, and as God's Spirit worked to uproot and tear down in Judah, but would now build and plant in us as we don't be like Judah. And to know how to do that, I think, as always, as we've been trying to do in this series, we jump forward to Jesus, okay? So we find similar situations, kind of hinted at this earlier, where Jesus is coming up against the same kind of thing. In his day, many of the thought leaders of the day, like they're called Pharisees or Sadducees a lot of times, they kind of divide the world up into two groups of people. You had the righteous on the one side, and then you had the sinners or the unclean, and the tax people on the other side. Yes, they would have really hated the IRS in the ancient world. Um, So you kind of have these two groups of people, and the job of the righteous was to let others know about uh, your righteousness and to denigrate them for not being that. Kind of create distance between you and them, create separation. And that was a way in which they kind of signaled their righteousness. Now, just like God is unimpressed in Jeremiah 14... Jesus is super unimpressed with these people, too. He would often use that Greek word, hypocrites, uh, to describe them as play actors, acting like all the world's a stage. Jesus is, he does is not, not want a ticket to this show. Okay? He is not interested in watching this. He'd say to them, you're just putting on a show for people. You're signaling or presenting one thing that is not true of ha- who you actually are, especially before God. But you think getting that reward now from others, seeing you as the right kind of person is all that matters. And Jesus kind of called him out for it. I really think this got under his skin. I really think this is one of the things that drove him the most uh, crazy when he was uh, living on earth. And so I think Jesus would, you know, spend this time with people who weren't trying to do this play acting. He would go to others who, uh, who weren't relying on hypocrisy to give them a sense of validation and reward. And he was criticized for it often. This was kind of a point of contention between him and these uh, people that he would come into uh, conflict with over this issue. And so one place we find this is in Matthew 9, 10 to 13. When Jesus sat down to eat in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said, Healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. Go and learn what this means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners. Okay, people in Jesus' day thought, you know, just like we do today, that the people who matter, that Jesus should be spending his time around, especially if he's a great prophet or, or, or rabbi or even Messiah, if that's how you thought of him at this moment, um, they, he should be paying attention to the people who looked really righteous, who, who didn't have any problems, who presented themselves as very healthy, okay, just like it's a great play. The people who had a great moral beach body, very healthy looking people. Okay, This is who they thought Jesus should have been spending his time around. But Jesus says to them, think about that. If I am a healer, if I am coming to do God's work, why would I come for those people? Like, Why would I spend my time around these people who at least think that they're totally fine? Like, What, what need do they have for me to come and spend time around them? Okay, Not only do they not need me then, if that's the case, but in actuality, they're missing the fact, they're blind to the fact that they're not actually as healthy as they think they are. So no, I think I'll spend my time around the people who are brokenhearted, who are hurting, who are poor in spirit, the ones who don't pretend they're healthy and whose pursuit of me then is actually genuine, not trying to just uh, show me how great they are, but are actually seeking me out because they think I can actually heal them because they're not great, because they're not play-acting. I think these are the kind of hearts that God is looking for in Jeremiah 14 and that he's not getting. And so he's like, no, thank you, I'm not interested. And that's who Jesus now is saying he's come to dwell with as well. So which of the people in the room should we try to be? What kind of posture should we adopt, do we think? If we're actually asking, who is God coming to dwell with, to spend time with? The ones who are trying to project to everyone, including God, that they're the right people, that they actually don't need God that badly because everything is fine, they're doing great, thank you very much. Or the ones who actually admit they're not and are calling out to Jesus, calling out to God, they're, they're sick. Like, they need God to come and dwell with them. It seems like Jesus here tells us this, okay? And I want you to really think about the significance of this, okay? Jesus, God himself, wants to dwell around people who know that there's an issue. And so if we can shake that mindset that we are the kind of people who need to be applauded for our opinions, who need to be uh, criticized, need to be criticizing the quote-unquote sinners of our day, uh, and, and instead quit presenting something that about our hearts that isn't true, that's when God is going to actually meet us and dwell with us and come to us. Just like Jesus meets with the sick, the ones who repent, who come to him out of great need, out of great desire for him. This is the posture we should take. It doesn't scare God away, right? I think we're afraid that You know, when we don't present ourselves well to the people around us, it's going to scare them off. We're not going to get the approval of people we like. We're not going to be seen as the right kind of person. We're going to be ostracized from society in some way, okay? God is not going to be scared off by that. That doesn't drive God away. It actually invites him closer. If you want God to walk with us, if you want him to dwell with us, to speak to us, to move in our lives, that's the posture that he's looking for. This is maybe you you didn't you didn't like realize this, but you know I see like what are the most popular sermons that we preach at Res City, like just by the number of downloads we get, and the types of sermons that by far get the most downloads are the ones about like hearing from God or speaking to God or you know dwelling with God, those kind of mystical ideas of God coming and being with us, like that people are really interested in that and crave it. Okay, I can I can just see this from the interest in those types of sermons. If you want to be the type of person that God dwells with, the posture we should start with is a posture of inviting God in through our repentance, through our humility, through our vulnerability, through our ability to not have to project to God that we're totally fine, but we're actually crying out to him, we're calling to him. We're in need of a physician. Not that we're totally fine, not we're good, God, you should come hang out with me because I'm so great. Okay? It's actually the opposite of that. In Jeremiah, God talks about his longing for Israel to be that people again. Okay? He, he speaks with longingness about the days when he brought them up out of Egypt, when they were a people that had just been liberated from slavery. They had nothing to stand upon on their own. They had to dwell fully On God, He says, I long for those days again. I wish you still had those hearts, but you're not. You're trying to pretend you're awesome. You're trying to project that to the rest of the world around you, and you're trying to do it to me, and I'm sick of it. Quit trying to do that. Be the people that I called you to be, people who were humble and reliant on me, and I will dwell with you again. I will heal your wounds. I will deliver you. If we want to truly respond and invite God in, that's where we should start. As we close here, communion is a great place for us to do this every single week, to remind ourselves of why Jesus came, what he has done for us as he's come. He has come to deliver us through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood for us so that we might find hope and life through him. He became brokenhearted for us, for our own life. And we partake in that when we uh, take communion every single week. So we're going to be uh, doing that now as we worship as well. Meditate on that. Meditate and ask yourself, like, where am I trying to project maybe to myself or God uh, that I'm okay, that I'm the the good guy, I'm the right kind of person? And where can I actually come to God as he comes to us as one who is brokenhearted, whose body is broken and his blood shed for us? How can I live like Christ back to God and around the people that I'm gathered here together with, maybe here or as I go out from this place? Um, if you would like prayer as, all, as well, we will have uh, prayer in the back for anyone who uh, has prayer for issue, uh, a prayer request for anything at all. Okay, let me pray for us, and then we'll enter into that time. God, we thank you that you uh, come to us in our brokenness. You come to us as we are. You do not ask us to uh, be the right kind of person who uh, projects to you um, our, our righteousness, our, uh, that we are the, just the right kind of person, God. And we, and we can think that, that we have to attain some standard and that is what it takes for us to, to measure up, to invite you in. But no, God, you come to us as we actually are. I pray that you would help us to have the vulnerability and the humility to um, admit to ourselves and to you that that's who we are. And that as we do that, you would come to us, you would heal us, you'd make us new, you'd walk with us, God. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.